This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Welcome back to How We Got Here. This is episode four of season two in our journey through Virginia's rich history. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa. I'm an investigative reporter with the TV station NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. And this week, we are turning back the clock on December 9th through the 15th. For much of season two of How We Got Here, you may have noticed a certain genre of segment missing. Civil War battles. That's because winter warfare was quite rare at that time. Winter campaigns are anathema uh, in the 19th century. Most of the road networks here in Virginia and across the entire country are primarily dirt roads. Uh, Weather becomes unpredictable, roads become unmanageable, rivers go up and become unaffordable, and suddenly armies find themselves easily stranded, bogged down with no means of resupply or reinforcements. This is a virtual nightmare. But that was not the case for the Battle of Fredericksburg, December 11th through the 15th, 1862. A bloodbath about 50 miles north of Richmond that would change the war in ways you would never expect. And who better to talk about the Battle of Fredericksburg than the man who has studied it for more than three decades? My name is Frank O'Reilly, and I am a historian with the National Park Service. I've been with the Park Service for 33 years. I was on Civil War battlefields as early as six, and uh, just have fallen in love with it. I'm always interested in how good people deal with unreasonable circumstances. He was born in another Commonwealth before coming to our own. I was born up in Pennsylvania, but I've spent uh, the vast majority of my life uh, living here in Virginia. And let me tell you right now, this is not the last time we'll have O'Reilly on this podcast. He's a storyteller's storyteller. When I first heard him, I thought Civil War poet. So let's get started. Leading into December of 1862, the Civil War has taken a a radical turn and has a a new sense of urgency that wasn't there before. Abraham Lincoln has issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It's an ultimatum to the South that if they renounce secession uh, before January 1st, they will discuss their problems within the framework of the government. If they don't renounce by New Year's Day, The Emancipation Proclamation is being signed into law and everything fundamentally is changing across the board. Even novices of American history know the incredible weight of the Emancipation Proclamation in the early years of the Civil War. Probably one of the most radical things that has occurred in America in the 19th century. Before this point, the Civil War had been about restoring the Union to the way it was before, but the 16th president had other ideas. With the emancipation, Abraham Lincoln just blew up the status quo antebellum because the status quo had slavery. He says it's non-negotiable now. 
Lincoln's the first one who decides, I don't fight for the Union. The Union's flawed. That's why people are dying. I fight for an America worth fighting for, which is beautiful rhetoric, uh, but honestly, nobody knows what that America is. The victor gets to decide. And in late 1862, that victor was not coming from Congress. It had to come from the battlefield. Because time was running out on that deadline for the Emancipation Proclamation. If Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation is going to be real, if it's going to be legitimate, if it's going to be vibrant and have peace and survive, it's going to rely exclusively on military victory. And that's why Lincoln is going to do the unthinkable. He's going to insist that his field armies venture forth in a winter campaign. In other words, he's desperate for positive military action and victory at any cost because he sees the future of the country at stake. He needed a general who could act fast. And that was not who he had at the helm at the time. Here in Virginia, the largest, most prestigious army of the Republic is in the hands of one of the most... Uh, uh, slothful commanders imaginable, George B. McClellan. So where George McClellan dragged his feet, George McClellan was sacked. Uh, his replacement, Ambrose Everett Burnside, uh, was handpicked by the president because in 1862, he seemed to be the right man. He was aggressive. He was decisive. Lincoln's orders to Burnside. What are you going to do with this huge army of yours? Burnside gets his army moving. His eyes turned to Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg had a good road network that went between it and Richmond, which was ultimately the Union destination. More importantly, it had a railroad. The railroad was essential to success in a winter campaign. Fredericksburg was just that perfect jump-off spot. He proposed seizing it with speed and surprise before the Confederates could ever react and block him. If his plan succeeded, the Union would have an inside track to the Confederate capital. And President Lincoln, he agreed. When the president approved the plan, Burnside was marching within 24 hours. Quick, decisive, aggressive. Just what the president wanted. But there is one little glitch. A glitch that will play a huge role, not only in this battle, but many of the battles in the years to come. Fredericksburg sits on a river, the Rappahannock. All the rivers here run east-west. They're like belts across the state of Virginia. And these belts are major military obstacles for attacking forces, but also great defensive positions for their opponents. So to overcome these obstacles and to move swiftly, the Union Army needed bridges. They needed mobile bridges or pontoon bridges made out of pontoon boats. He ordered them from the War Department so he could make his decisive move. When the Union Army arrived in Fredericksburg, they caught the Confederates completely off guard. Burnside's huge army of 135,000 wound up stranded on the wrong side of the river. They showed up, but their bridges didn't. It would take 10 days for the bridges to finally arrive was a tremendous bureaucratic snafu. The engineers and the bridges hadn't been alerted to this movement in a timely manner. Robert E. Lee was initially caught off guard, flat-footed. When the Union Army stopped itself, Robert E. Lee reevaluated uh, and concentrated his forces at Fredericksburg. 
When Burnside first showed up on the northern shore of the Rappahannock, there were only 800 Confederate troops. But by the time the bridges finally arrived, around 78,000 men were defending Fredericksburg. The plan that Burnside envisioned of just seizing the city and moving south without a battle, well, that had just turned to dust. He would look up and down the river for a weak spot in the Confederate defenses, but never found one. Burnside opted to attack right in the middle, right at Fredericksburg itself. And because the Confederates were stretched up and down the southern bank, their lines were thin. He's going to force his way across the Rappahannock River on December 11th, 1862. And the rules of war were changing that day. Instead of the Confederates lining up shoulder to shoulder, you know, like you've seen in the movies, they hid in the houses and took aim at the river. Where everybody became a sniper. That was not typical of 19th century warfare. The Union Army wound up uh, finding that the sharpshooters prevented the bridge builders from getting their bridges done. Because of that, the Union artillery did something it had never done before. They bombarded a city during an active fluid battle. This is the first time where the city is not a military citadel, but in fact uh, just a civilian population. Thousands of rounds were thrown into that city. But even then, the Confederates couldn't be dislodged. When that didn't work, they created a new strategy, a game changer, that would come into play during World War II. Union infantry were placed in pontoon boats and ferried across the river under fire to physically drive the Confederates out of the houses and clear the riverfront. When they hit the other bank of the Rappahannock River, that's the first beachhead we've ever established under fire in our history. A great-great-granddaddy of D-Day and all the Pacific landings of the Second World War, uh, they all start right here in Virginia. Once the Union arrived in town, they had to drive the Confederates from their hiding places. They were fighting house by house, block by block, uh, through the downtown. This is the first urban combat in all of North America. There are no rules for these things uh, in 1862. Uh, they're literally making it up as they go along. Hundreds of Union soldiers were injured or killed, trying to gain control of the city. And the soldiers that survived were hungry for vengeance. And that's when we get yet another unprecedented moment. The city of Fredericksburg becomes the first large populous area that has been ransacked since the British burned Washington during the War of 1812. The nice cities of the Gentleman War, they're gone. That's a myth. Things have gotten brutal and vicious. With everything that had already transpired on December 11th and 12th, the real bloodletting had yet to come. Because the Union's element of surprise was gone, the only thing to do now was to go with the Confederate Army with everything they had. Burnside crafted this elaborate plan, a main attack to the south and a diversion to the north at a place called Marie's Heights. But his orders, they weren't clear and his subordinates didn't do what he had hoped, a deadly misstep. So at the main attack to the south, they only had 8,000 men. The Confederates, led by Stonewall Jackson, had 37,000. And there was a big problem. 
a swamp near Jackson's front line. His men avoided it, but the Union Army, looking for any cover they could find, they went right in. Uh, the swamp certainly discombobulated their attack, but at the same time, nobody was there to shoot them. So they took the path of least resistance. It was easier to get muddy and wet in December than to get shot. Those Union soldiers, led by General George G. Meade, they were able to break the Confederate line. An incredible upper hand. But because of more miscommunication, when they called for reinforcements, they never arrived. Uh, that gave Stonewall Jackson a chance to uh, regain his composure, contain the breakthrough, and then force the Union troops back out with dreadful losses. Battle on the south end of the battlefield was very bloody. Um, 9,000 people got hurt. 5,000 of them were Union casualties. 4,000 of them were Confederates. The losses are pretty close to one to one. But in the end, Stonewall Jackson was able to restore his line, and Burnside had already lost his best, <laughs> if we're honest, only chance of success. But what's remembered most about the Battle of Fredericksburg is what happened on the other side of Burnside's aggressive assault. You know, that diversion. The Union forces attacked Marie's Heights and a stone wall, not once, not twice, but in fact, seven times. Not Stonewall Jackson, but a sunken road that was guarded by a low, half-mile-long stone wall that afforded the Confederates several hundred yards of open fields that the Union Army had to cross, with murderous results. The seven assaults were an absolute blood sacrifice. It was a mess from beginning to end. Many people think that it's a horrible slaughter rather than a battle. Honestly, the, the losses on the north end of the battlefield are almost exactly the same as those on the south end of the battlefield. There's 9,000 losses. What makes it stand out in everybody's impression is how inequitably it's distributed. Of the 9,000, only 1,000 of them are Confederates who got hurt. 8,000 Union soldiers fell in front of the stone wall, and not one Union soldier ever got to the stone wall. A Union soldier who miraculously survived would write that the Confederate fire was so intense, Union lines seemed to melt like snow coming down on warm ground. Thousands of swollen Union corpses were strewn across the field. The sights and smells of death were everywhere. The aftermath of the battle, when you see the Union troops staggering back from the breakthrough on the south end, coming across an open field where they left thousands and thousands of their men bleeding and mangled. The ground itself became known as the slaughter pen uh, to both sides because it was such an affecting scene. In the aftermath of the bloody battle, one of the most famous quotes in American history. Robert E. Lee was affected by that scene as well. He turned to his second in command, a fellow named James Longstreet, and just whispered to him, it's well that war is so terrible, or we would grow too fond of it. It's an open admission by Robert E. Lee that he himself was seduced by the brilliant pageantry of the morning, uh, and then reminded of the cruel fate of what soldiers' jobs really are. When you see statements like, it's well the war is so terrible, those are quotes that are easily understood 
coming from those who had been destroyed by it, usually those who had been vanquished. But to have those words come from the victor in one of his easiest victories really must make this whole scene even more sublime than history could ever understand. For both sides, this battle was likely the most decisive moment of combat since the war began. This is certainly the most lopsided victory Robert E. Lee ever had. The Confederates lost about 5,000 men, but the Union Army lost about 13,000 men. It doesn't get more one-sided during the entire war. And it's well documented that General Burnside wept, taking responsibility for the slaughter. But he was able to get the rest of his troops to safely retreat. General Ambrose Burnside was replaced a month later, a commander that held his position for just 77 days. He was never going to be quite the same man again. But the impact of the Battle of Fredericksburg isn't exactly what it seems on the surface. It does something so big that most people can't even see it. It polarizes the morale of the North and the South in such a unique way. Southerners think coming out of Fredericksburg that they're absolutely unbeatable. They're unstoppable. Uh, they feel that they're even sanctioned by a higher power. A thought that was bolstered by an incredibly rare natural phenomenon the night after the bloodbath. The Aurora Borealis. Rarely seen in these parts of Virginia, but here with the Northern Lights right on the battlefield. And Confederates write about it very enthusiastically, about heaven's fireworks celebrating their independence, their victory. As the Union soldiers look down in defeat at the bodies of their friends and comrades, the Confederate Army was riding an almost supernatural high. The Confederates who think they're absolutely unbeatable, that's going to lead them into some rash and foolhardy decisions in the future. At Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge. A future battle where the Confederates are devastated. It was then the Union Army saw its chance for payback. They literally shouted at the Confederates the word Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. Historians today argue over why Robert E. Lee decided to make that attack in the first place. The most visceral answer came from Lee himself. He just blurted out, I thought my men were invincible. The Union defeat at Fredericksburg was an embarrassment in the North. There were 13,000 physical casualties, but there were 130,000 psychological casualties. And ironically, in the process of trying to erase that awful memory, it wound up galvanizing these men into an army. They were fighting for revenge or redemption. One of the officers after this battle wrote to his wife, saying he didn't know what the politicians proposed to do next, and he didn't even care. He made the declaration, I want to give those rebels one thorough good thrashing, and for that I will go through a great deal. The man who wrote those words, General George G. Meade. In six months, he'll command that Union Army and take them to Gettysburg and start them on their road to redemption, a road that will take them all the way to Appomattox. George Meade and Robert E. Lee's forces met on the battlefield in December of 1862, but they were friends before the Civil War erupted. And they met again as adversaries at Appomattox in April of 1865. 
This time, the tables had turned. They uh, chatted about old days, but they only talked about one battle out of the entire Civil War. And it was Fredericksburg, not Gettysburg. Fredericksburg was where George Meade made the breakthrough that nobody else could make. For Lee, Fredericksburg was his easiest victory. And yet, it's the battle that changes both their outlooks. For Lee, it was an easy victory that uh, mislaid his perception. For Meade, it's a terrible defeat that gave him focus. And that's why it's so important. December 11th through the 15th, 1862. The Battle of Fredericksburg didn't necessarily change the war. It changed the men who would later claim victory and accept defeat. Take a walk down Richmond's historic Capitol Square, and for years you were greeted by the towering sculptures of America's founding fathers. But two months ago, the gentle faces of prominent Virginia women were finally added into the mix. The path that leads us to this part of American history brings us to the life of one of the 12 women featured in the new Virginia Women's Monument, Maggie Lena Walker. You see, on December 15, 1934, Maggie Walker died at age 70 from complications of diabetes. But it's not her death we focus on in this episode. It's her vivid and inspiring life. Walker was the first female bank president in the U.S. She was also black. Maggie Walker was a, an amazing leader and entrepreneur uh, during the time uh, that most people overlooked, the Jim Crow segregation era. Mrs. Walker um, didn't just spring up fully leading right away. She was a young girl who had, whose mother was a former slave, and she grew up in that first generation of freedom after slavery, and went through all the struggles of Reconstruction and, and all the, the hopes that were kind of dashed away during the Jim Crow era. And then she had physical hardships, and hardships in fact that her, her family members, many of them, them died. Um, so with that, she still struggled on, and was a woman who would not only seek opportunities and open doors for herself, but she'd turn around and leave them open for the others to follow. That's Agina Rogers, a park ranger with the National Park Service. We've asked Agina many times over the years to help us share the legacy of Walker, who was not only a bank founder, but a teacher, entrepreneur, community activist, and leader. Her home still stands at 2nd Street in Jackson Ward in Richmond. That's an area we talk about a lot on how we got here. It was the Harlem of the South in its heyday. Her home is a National Historic Site. At the National Historic Site, we preserve her, her home and the setting of where she lived and how she lived during that very critical time. When it comes to the history of Maggie Lena Walker, Liza Mickens knows it from beginning to end. She really was doing things that were beyond her time. And 
very powerful for her black community as well. That's because her connection to one of Richmond's most recognized women runs through her veins. I am the great-great-granddaughter of Maggie Lena Walker. But my grandmother was her last living granddaughter. Maggie grew up in Richmond. In 1864, she graduated from the Richmond Colored Normal School and became a teacher. But her hunger to better herself kept her learning. She took classes in accounting on the side. She joined the Independent Order of the Sons and Daughters of St. Luke, a fraternal organization, and she climbed the ranks, eventually taking the helm. At the time, the organization had just $32 in assets and $400 in debt. She single-handedly turned it around, saving the group from bankruptcy. In 1901, she expanded the order's services to include a newspaper, a department store, and most famously, she founded a bank. The St. Luke Penny Savings Bank in Richmond officially opened in 1903. She served as its president for nearly 30 years. In 1931, it merged with other black banks to form the Consolidated Bank and Trust Company. It was just a few years ago the city added a 10-foot bronze statue of a 45-year-old walker in the heart of the city. This is the first monument on a city street dedicated to a woman in our city's history. That was Richmond's mayor, LeVar Stoney, at the unveiling. Her statue faces Richmond's Broad Street from the gateway of Jackson Ward. Her great-great-granddaughter, Liza, is most proud of where that statue sits and what that represents. My favorite part of the Maggie Walker story is her work that she did through the Emporium here on Broad Street. And she is gonna be one of the few, if not the only statue here on Broad Street. And her Emporium was the largest employer of black females in the city of Richmond at a time when black owned businesses were not allowed on this street. Maggie's life wasn't just about business. She was an activist. In 1904, she helped organize a protest against the Virginia Passenger and Power Company's policy of segregated seating on Richmond streetcars. To this day, there's a governor's school named for Maggie. To her family, she's Miss Maggie. Liza can't help but wonder what her famous ancestor would think about all this attention. She's a very humbled woman, so I'm sure she would just be honored to be recognized for all of the work that she did. Maggie Walker's legacy, not only a footprint in Richmond, but across the nation. Thousands of people turned out for her funeral. She was buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Richmond, a historically black burial ground. Her gravesite in the often neglected cemetery, a stark reminder of her ability even now to shine a light on injustices. Because every year, people fight to preserve the historic grave sites from the inevitable wear and tear of time. Maggie Lena Walker died December 15, 1934, in the former capital of the Confederacy. A pioneer for women and African Americans, decades before the Civil Rights Movement erupted in the South.
It was early in the morning on December 9, 1775, eight months after shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, and seven months before the Declaration of Independence was signed. The first significant land battle of the Revolutionary War in the South was about to begin, right here in Virginia. The British appointed royal governor, John Murray, fourth Earl of Dunmore, established a headquarters in modern day Hampton Roads. And his British forces were often involved in small skirmishes with Virginia's militia near Norfolk. To protect that area from the Redcoats, Colonel William Woodford brought his regiment of rebels and the Culpeper Minutemen to a place known as Great Bridge. It spans the Elizabeth River. And on the morning of December 9th, 1775, the Battle of Great Bridge began. And it was over nearly as fast as it started. British Captain Samuel Leslie sent his men across the bridge to attack Woodford's forces but the rebels were ready. Greeting the British with a hail of gunfire, more than a dozen redcoats were killed and more than 50 others wounded. As for Woodford's men, no injuries. Some reports say the battle lasted just five minutes. Others put it just over a half hour. But nonetheless, Captain Leslie and Lord Dunmore retreated to Portsmouth to lick their wounds. And when Woodford's men were reinforced by troops from the Tar Heel State, the rebels, not those rebels. I couldn't help it, guys, I'm sorry. You know I love a good bad joke. Anyway, the rebels marched into Norfolk, occupying the largest city in Virginia at the time, giving the rebellion a huge advantage in the first year of the Revolutionary War. Forty miles from Yorktown and nearly six years before the British surrender there. Blood was spilled in Virginia during the first significant land battle of the Revolutionary War in the South. It was December 9th, 1775 setting the stage for more bloodshed that would eventually lead to a new independent nation in the new world. A young nation mourns. We know that he was taking his own pulse when he passed away. A man who led a country through the hardships of independence, helping to guide self-governance. They noticed his hand slip away from his own wrist, and they, they knew right away that his heart had stopped uh, beating and he'd stopped breathing. December 14th, 1799. Martha asks, is he gone? George Washington is dead. 
in talking about George Washington's life, there's a lot of things to talk about, but it's the death itself, the moments, the closing hours. The public appetite for that is, is pretty serious. There's still something very primal about that. We want to understand not just about the life, but about the death of these, of these towering figures in our past. The voice you're hearing is that of Dr. Kevin Butterfield, the executive director of George Washington's Presidential Library at Mount Vernon. I came here just last year in 2018. Prior to that, I've been teaching American history at the University of Oklahoma for eight years. And since then, he's gotten familiar with the obsession that Virginians have with Washington. I really start to wrap my head around all the, the, the details, the sort of the things that people around here know inside and out, like the names of his nephews and nieces and step-grandchildren and all these kinds of things. These are things I, I didn't know coming in, but you learn very quickly when you spend time in Mount Vernon. We've brought you a number of spy stories so far this season, and Butterfield's is too good not to share. This is going to sound strange for someone at Mount Vernon, but it was, it was Jefferson uh, that brought me in. There's a little bit of a, a low-key rivalry here at Mount Vernon uh, between us and, and Monticello, so it's funny when I mention that to, to my colleagues now that it was Jefferson that brought me in, but here I am now at the uh, home of George Washington. A Jefferson spy within the walls of Washington's home. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So let's venture back in time to the days leading up to Washington's final breath. George Washington retired for the second time in 1797, returning to Mount Vernon to live out his days and manage the estate operated mostly by slaves. Washington is a hands-on manager of a, of a pretty massive plantation. And in the days leading up to what becomes his last day on earth, he is riding across the five farms pretty regularly. And even in his 60s, Washington saw horseback riding as one of the best forms of exercise. And we're talking about riding for hours, not, not for a handful of minutes. Uh, so on the days leading up to his death, he's doing that. He's in the saddle, he's riding around the plantation, he's talking to overseers and um, taking a first-hand look at, uh, at the state of things as it's becoming winter. It's December in Northern Virginia, after all, and the day before he died, he was out riding in conditions we would describe today as a wintry mix. He went directly into dinner, where he'd obviously taken off his coat, but he's wearing the, the same clothes that he had been out riding in. Uh, he didn't come in from the cold already ill. He seemed well at dinner, but sometime in the night, uh, his, his health took a turn. It wasn't until 2 a.m. on December 14th 1799, that Washington woke up knowing something wasn't right. He has a terribly sore throat. Between two and three, he tells Martha, his wife, that he's ill. And she noticed and she recalled that he was already breathing with some difficulty. It's a you know, severely inflamed and uh, infected uh, throat that's beginning to sort of close in on Washington's uh, airway. A doctor was called first thing in the morning, and three would show up to tend to who would surely become their highest profile patient. And if you know anything about Washington's death, 
The first thing to know is that medicine has come a long way since 1799. Because that first choice of treatment for George Washington, it was bloodletting. We have a sort of 21st century reaction to, to doctors coming in and essentially killing their patients by bleeding them. Taking out blood uh, in a way that they imagined would help to alleviate the, the illness by uh, sort of removing what they imagined was bad blood uh, that the body could then replace with a healthier, uninfected blood. And that was the state of the field at the time. That they imagined that the body could replace the blood volume relatively quickly. Uh, we now know that it you know, takes days and weeks to do that. George Washington was not at all a, an unwilling patient here. He firmly believed in, in bloodletting as a way to alleviate illness. Okay, if the sight or discussion of blood makes you queasy, skip ahead 30 seconds because we're about to get specific. Full disclosure, I would totally be skipping ahead myself. I can't take blood discussions. Basically, if you've, if you've given blood before, you, you know what this feels like. Something in that manner, but without putting it into a bag, simply bleeding it out into uh, some sort of container. One account of the, the doctors adds up to, to 80 some ounces of blood. So if you've ever seen a, a, a big gulp container of 32 ounces, that gives you some sense of, of how much blood we're talking about. I can imagine that being extraordinarily weakening. This is also our chance to quash a myth that's pretty common, leeches being used to suck out Washington's so-called infected blood. Reading through um, the, the, the doctor's accounts, you don't see descriptions of leeches. And Kevin even went back into his research to look again. And he confirmed there is no mention of the creatures in surviving documents. But the tremendous bloodletting did not help Washington's condition. They did also two other things that they, they believed were in the same vein. Uh, well, sorry for the pun there. Uh, that they, they believed were in the same category. They would create blisters, which they believed would pull some of that infection out to the surface, and then they could puncture the blister, blister and help to release it. They believed that blistering close to the source of the, of the problem was, was important. So we're talking about blistering on, on his neck and his, his upper torso. And to go along with those blisters, they would give him drinks to make him vomit with a vengeance. So all three of those, bloodletting, blistering, and purging, those are all aimed at doing the same thing, pulling, pulling the bad elements out of his body. And they all were ineffective, obviously, uh, but also certainly couldn't have helped his condition in any way and, and probably uh, just added to the suffering in the last hours. It sounds like absolute torture. But through it all, documents show that Washington seems to keep his composure. Just as a historian, I'm going to assume there's a little bit of, of glossing here. But they all uh, agree that he was composed, that he was not a undignified patient. They even describe that in his last hours, he, he gets up out of bed and changes clothes. He makes a point of sort of dressing himself. By all accounts, he's describing to everyone that he knows he's in his last hours. With the death of prominent figures throughout history, special attention is often given to their last will and testament, which can cause drama. But you probably haven't heard much about Washington's will, and there's a good reason why. 
He asks Martha to to bring copies of a will he had prepared, and he actually burns uh, one copy of the will so that there's only one will and not two rival wills, which, as everyone knows, uh, only produces problems. In July of 1799, he had written the will that becomes so important to his legacy because in it he frees uh, every enslaved person that he can. More than 130 enslaved people get uh, freedom upon his wife's death. She actually moves up and, and frees them before she dies. Not long after finalizing his will, the lethal combination of father time and an infection from mother nature became too much. We know that he was taking his own pulse when he passed away. They noticed his hand slip away from his own wrist. And they, they knew right away that his heart had stopped uh, beating and he'd stopped breathing. This is in the bedchamber when you visit Mount Vernon, you can still see the bed in which George Washington passed away. The first president of the United States of America, gone. The quiet dignity of the death, I think, is, is actually pretty profound. I mean, it, it comes out in every every account. And again, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm willing to acknowledge that, that there's a little bit of glossing over that may take place by people writing about the death of the father of the country. And it was not the doctor's torturous treatment that killed him. Obviously, we don't have cultures or anything that can prove this, but, uh, but it, it was almost certainly a streptococcal throat infection, um, which would have essentially choked him. It did take a powerful and acute infection to, to bring him down. This was not something that was a, a gradual fading or anything. It was a, a, a much more quick and powerful infection. The young country shocked by the news that traveled up and down from Virginia. He had been retired from the presidency for just over two years. He was the first ex-president, and he, and he hadn't been out of office all that long. The shock and the public mourning was, was profound. Washington told Martha he wanted to lie out of the ground for three days and have his body placed in a mahogany casket in the largest room at Mount Vernon, the new room. And he's buried uh, on the ground where he still is today. The original founding father, dead at the age of 67. The nation's first president took his final breath on December 14th 1799. A towering figure in American history, so crucial to our independence. The influence of his life on our country, pivotal to how we got here. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, digital director Kate Albright who finished mixing this episode minutes before it hit your phone. I kid, I kid. Am I, though? And thank you, executive producer Colton Weekly, who survived our great battle over the editing of the Battle of Fredericksburg. If he had his way, that segment would have been 30 minutes. We compromised. And to our guest this week, Frank O'Reilly, who we will be having back, and to Kevin Butterfield with Mount Vernon, plus Agena Rogers, Carla Reddit, Liza Mickens. 
next week on Episode 5. Oh, I think that's wild. (laughs) When you realize how important this news is, that it takes that long. The country learns of George Washington's death from a Richmond native who delivers the news to Congress. And why a Virginia newspaper got the Wright brothers' first flight oh so wrong. Like a monster bird, the invention hovered above the breakers and circled over the rolling sand hills at the command of its navigator. Plus, a tea party demanding independence that didn't happen in Boston. We're still at a place in our country where slavery existed here longer than it has not existed. And the day slavery was officially abolished. That's next week on Episode 5. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.